Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any info on our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. So we're carrying on with our series in the book of Revelation, which I'm going to finish this summer, uh, which is exciting, right? And, uh, and uh, most of these weeks I've tackled about a chapter at a time. Today we're going to complete three chapters because they all go together. And uh, they're all actually introduced in Revelation chapter 14. So last week we only covered half of Revelation chapter 14, but there's a section from verses uh, 8 to 11, and we won't get through all of that here today. I'm going to read it all for you, but there's a, there's a section there in verses 8 to 11 that actually introduces the next five chapters of the book. And many people don't realize this. So you, if you're just reading through Revelation in your devotions, you don't, you don't catch it. But actually, this section of Revelation, uh, Revelation chapter 14, introduces the next five chapters of the book. Now, we're only going to look at one verse out of chapter 14 today, because that verse introduces three of those, and we're going we're gonna to tackle those ones, okay? And then next week, we'll come back to the next couple of verses here in Revelation 14, and then we'll tackle the chapters that that one introduces. But I'm going to read to you uh, here verses 8 to 13, and it says this, another angel, so we're just picking up where we left off last week. Another angel, a second followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Okay, now this is a new character in the Revelation. Okay, up to this point, we've, we've been introduced to the beast. Remember in, in chapter 13, we're introduced to the beast, uh, a political empire that persecutes God's people. Okay, um, now we're getting introduced to this Babylon. All right, we're going to see what that's all about. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. And then the final two verses I'm going to read to you here, we'll come back to these at the, at the end of the message. Here's a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. All right. So we'll go back. We'll come back to those last two verses at the end. But let's go back to verse eight there. And, uh, and this introduction, the first time in the book of Revelation, we're introduced to uh, Babylon. Okay. And we have this one verse prophecy. It seems kind of insignificant. You might, if you're just reading your devotions, you might just read past it and think, okay, well, that was just sort of a weird thing to throw in there and then keep going. You have to understand this is being introduced in chapter 14. Um, but it's not a minor topic for John, okay? It's not a minor topic for John at all. He's going to come back to this, and all of chapters 17 and 18 and the first part of 19 are all going to expand on this one little verse. So this is not a throwaway verse. This is an introduction to a really big topic for John uh, in the book of Revelation, okay? So the first question is, as with everything in Revelation, uh, often there's symbols, but the beauty of Revelation is a lot of times in Revelation, not every single time, but a lot of times in Revelation, the symbols are explained. If you stick with the story a little bit longer, then he's going to explain what the symbols are. So fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. Well, what is Babylon? We know about the beast, but what is Babylon? If we stick with it, uh, chapter 17, 18, and 19 are going to tell us what, what it is, okay? And so I'm going to read you a couple of excerpts here from chapter 18, and we'll explain this to us. Chapter 18, verse 2. And he, will call, and he called out with a mighty voice, as an angel again, fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. So we're back to Babylon the Great, just like we see introduced in chapter 14. Okay, but now we're going to see what this is. They, the kings of the earth, will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels, and with pearls, okay? And so what we see here, because there's lots of, uh, lots of Christians over the years have, have, you know, dug into this whole Babylon thing, uh, often popularly known in, in popular Christian culture as the harlot Babylon, okay? 
Um, but this Babylon the Great, lots of speculation. Is this some kind of a new age religion? Is it some sort of world religious system? All these sorts of things. But what I want you to see is that Revelation itself explains to us what the symbol means. What is Babylon the Great? It's a city, okay? And this is very clear. Many, many details throughout 17 and 18 and 19. I'll just read you a couple more verses here. Uh, and you'll just see this is clearly a city. It's talking about an actual place, okay? For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. And all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all, those, uh, and all whose trade is on the sea stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning, what city? So they're watching it burn in this prophetic vision. What city was like the great city? Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. Okay, so what you're seeing here is, remember, Revelation is all about contrasts. It's, God, it's a spiritual battle. It's dark versus light, God's kingdom versus Satan's kingdom. And there's, an even, there's even a contrast in terms of the cities. Remember, God's got a city. What's his city called? Jerusalem, okay? Satan's got a city, and here in Revelation, it's called Babylon, named after one of the arch, you know, nemesis of the Old Testament of the, Israel, of, of the, the, the nation of Israel, which was, you know, Babylon. So in Revelation, you have all these contrasts, dark and light, God's kingdom, Satan's kingdom, God's city, Jerusalem, versus Satan's city, Babylon, okay? So this is a prophetic vision of a city. And of course, we see it being destroyed. Now, if we break it down, because again, this is not a minor topic in the book of Revelation, okay? This was, you know, inspired by the Holy Spirit. John considered this a really important topic for the church to look at. It's not the only topic for the church to look at. There's lots of other stuff in the New Testament, but it is an important topic for the church to look at, to at least study and know. So there's three chapters in this. Chapter 17 uh, gives many details and characteristics. What is this city like? What's the identity? What are the characteristics of this city? Chapter 18, the whole of chapter 18 is just an in-depth description of the destruction of this city. And then the first part of chapter 19 is a scene in heaven that when the city is destroyed, heaven actually celebrates, okay, which is by the way, very interesting because there's no precedent for that anywhere in Scripture. Throughout Scripture, whenever evil cities are cast down, people don't celebrate. They're not supposed to. I mean, I think of Nineveh in the Old Testament. Jonah goes to Nineveh, and, uh, and well, first he runs away from Nineveh because he doesn't want to preach to them. Then he goes and preaches repentance, you know, grudgingly. Then he sits outside the city because why? He wants to see it destroyed. It's a wicked city. He wants to see it destroyed. And then God asks Jonah, why are you upset? Because remember, they repented, and then God didn't destroy it. And Jonah says, well, I'm, uh, I'm upset because you're not destroying it. And God says, shouldn't I have compassion? God had compassion on the wicked city of, of Nineveh. And in, and in the New Testament, uh, you know, the disciples, there was that one city where uh, the disciple of this city rejects Jesus, and, uh, and, and the disciples are upset, and they say, well, Jesus, should we call down fire from heaven because he rejected you? And Jesus says, you don't know the heart of God. So throughout Scripture, we see that our heart towards wicked cities is supposed to be one of compassion, one of mercy, even if it is righteous anger towards what they're doing. Um, but here we see the only, in chapter 19, and we'll look at it a little bit later in this message, in chapter 19, we actually have, it's very interesting, we have a place where heaven is actually rejoicing over the destruction of a city. So this is a, a, a very wicked city. So now, if we look into the details, uh, what is this city described as? What are the characteristics? And how would the first century Christians who are first hearing this and reading this, how would they have understood this? How would this have encouraged them and pastored them in the first century? Well, let's begin to read. Verse 1, uh, chapter 17, giving us characteristics. And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. Now again, Babylon is a city, okay? So how does a city commit sexual immorality? Well, again, just like with everything in Revelation, we have to go back, and this is all imagery that is steeped in the Old Testament, that is taken from the Old Testament. And if we go back into the Old Testament, what do we find? 
uh, one of the most common pictures that God uses when the nation of Israel goes astray and follows after other gods, when the nation of Israel goes into idolatry, one of the most common pictures God uses is of a marriage, and he says that the nation of Israel has committed adultery because he and Israel had a covenant. So when they go after other gods, the picture God uses of, it's like adultery. Idolatry and, and adultery are very similar words in the English, which is just a coincidence, but they're similar in God's mind too. It's, uh, idolatry is adultery. It's sexual immorality. That kind of picture is used over and over again in the Old Testament. Okay? So when we see this here in Revelation, this city, okay, it's a city, but the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality. This city is, is some kind of a leader in leading people to worship another god or other gods, not the true god, okay? That's what's happening here, okay? And then we keep reading. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations. So a cup full of abominations is a very sinful place, incredibly sinful place, and the impurities of her sexual immorality. So now again, we read this and, and people might say, well, I wonder what the significance are of purple and scarlet. Like what's, what does that symbolize? And the thing you have to understand is uh, it's not so much that those colors symbolize something other than that in the first century, purple and scarlet were incredibly expensive colors. See, it wasn't like today. There's a lot of things we take for granted today. I mean, we're all sitting here as I look out over you guys all, there are many colors out in front of me. There's reds and yellows and greens and lots of blues and blacks and whites. And, but there's lots of colors here today, okay? And we just take that for granted because nowadays we can manufacture, we can synthesize colors very easily. You can go, go to a, a, any paint store and you can quickly get, you know, a red but then, or pink or, and then a hundred shades in between, things I, I've never even heard of before, Right? and seashell blue, whatever that is, and different mocha gray, and da-da-da-da-da. It's, it's unbelievable. You can get any color you want, and even colors that really don't exist. And, uh, but back then, you, you didn't have, you know, you didn't have, people weren't able to, to synthesize colors. So if you wanted color on something back then, you had to get it out of something physical in nature, Okay. So green was always easy. Just get yourself a grass stain. You want a green cloak? Just go dive in the grass, right? You can find, find lots of things that have green. You can, you know, here in Steinbeck, you can find lots of things that are yellow every spring. Lots of dandelions in abundance, right? And you can, you can find things that are that color. But purple and red, to find something physical that gives you a purple color is very labor-intensive. In fact, I, I forget exactly where they got purple, but I think it was from some kind of sea creature. I can't remember exactly. But whatever the case was, it was very labor-intensive to find it. So the only people who had purple stuff, like this is not purple plastic toys in a, in a Happy Meal kind of thing that you just get. If you had something purple, it was expensive, okay? So in other words, you know, this woman is arrayed in purple and scars. She's got golden jewels. Uh, she's wealthy. So, okay, so first of all, she is idolatrous. She is leading people astray from worship of the true God towards either many gods or a god or whatever it is, but different than God, okay? She is wealthy, cup full of abominations. She is full of Sin and immorality, these are some of the key things that describe this city uh, called Babylon the Great. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. Now, you know how every city kind of has a sign when you, when you go into it, right? I bet none of us has ever seen a sign like this. You know, welcome to blank, mother of prostitutes and earth's abominations. No. I mean, Las Vegas has some pretty bad signs. I, I actually heard of one yesterday, but, but I'm not saying, by the way, I am not. Do not go to the coffee shops and say he's saying Las Vegas is, is, is the heart of Babylon, okay? But anyway, it's the only city I can think of that would have a sign that might compare to this. But uh, someone talked to me yesterday, a trucker, he said he had driven into uh, Las Vegas some years ago, and there was a sign, the one place he had gone in, and it said, uh, welcome to Las Vegas, uh, seven deadly sins, we demand a recount. And I was like... Something to that effect, like, are you looking to be struck by lightning, okay? <laughs> I'm going to drive around this city, not through. But anyway, okay, this, so this woman is, this, this, this city is called the mother of prostitutes. Now, again, lots of speculation. Lots of Christians 
have talked about this. What could this mean? Okay? And obviously, there's always going to be some mystery with some of this prophetic stuff. But, but mother of prostitutes, a lot of Christians have tried to tie this to, you know, a mother, the pictures of a mother giving birth. So therefore, this city is the, is the source of this, uh, or, you know, a lot of Christians don't see it as a city. They see it as some kind of religious system or something. Um, but they see it as giving birth, mother in, in the sense of giving birth to every false religion or giving birth to every sin. Now, the fact of the matter is that's just not possible. There are many different false religions. There's been many different idolatrous beliefs. There's many different sins. And there's not any, you won't be able to go through history and find a source. I know I've seen some people who've gone really in depth trying to find the source. You won't be able to find the source. This is in, in the Middle East, well, in, even in English, when we speak, this is simply uh, 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 a way of expressing. Mother is like the, the biggest of all, like the mother of all battles is not the source of all battles. It's not like if I, if I you know, you know uh, if I claim, you know, that was the mother of all battles, and then you would try and trace that through history, and every other battle was sourced from that battle. No, no, it just means it was the biggest of all battles. This Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and earth's abominations, does not mean she is the source of everything. It means she's the biggest. Okay? She is the, the biggest false, you know, leader in false beliefs and false religion and sin. Okay? But there's sin and false belief everywhere we go. And then we see a final, really important, well, not final in the whole chapter, but of what we're going to look at here today. There's many details in these chapters, and we won't cover them all. But verse 6, and I saw the, the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. So she uh, physically and specifically persecutes Christians. Okay, she is drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. So she's, she's wealthy, she is idolatrous, she is full of sin, she persecutes, she outright and specifically persecutes and kills Christians. That's this city, okay? Now, always we've got to get the context, right? So the first century Christians, hearers and readers of this world, word, what are they thinking? Are they thinking to themselves as they hear this word? Are they thinking to themselves, are they trying to figure out in the future who this harlot city is going to be? And the answer is no. They know who this harlot city is immediately, John knows who's he, who he's writing about, at least in the moment for that time. We'll explore that a little bit more in just a second. And these believers all know exactly who this is being written about. For them, there's no question, this is Rome. Rome is their harlot Babylon, period. When they read this and they see, uh, you know, uh, wealthy, that's Rome. I mean, the leader, you know, for them, the most powerful city in, in the world as they knew it at that time, for sure. She is wealthy. Does she persecute Christians? Yes. I mean, all the decrees that are coming to them to persecute them, to put them to death, all of that is coming from one place. It's coming from Rome. Is it debauched? It's debauched. Everything they do in Rome is debauched. Okay, even their entertainment in the Colosseums is debauched. It's watching Christians get torn apart and tortured and people fighting each other and sexual stuff and disgusting. Idolatrous? The whole city. I'm a mother of prostitutes and earth's abominations. For them, all of this is Rome because, I mean, Rome is the one that makes you worship the emperor when you go to Rome. Rome is the one that has all these gods and has all these idolatrous feasts. The early Christians that are hearing this are not reading it as something way in the future it, they are reading it as this is very real uh, for us now. This is, an, this is a warning. This is an encouragement for us right now. Okay, and we're going to come back to that. You say, well, does that mean, you know, has this already happened? Has the harlot Babylon already come and gone? Well, we're going to keep reading and find out more, but let's find out a couple of more details and encouragement, and then, and then we'll, we'll see. So anyway, if we keep reading here in verse 7, but the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman. Now, by the way, marvel there, we often use the word uh, marvel as a positive thing, like, wow, you just marveled at something. That was amazing. You marveled at it. That was incredible. It blew your mind. This here, marveling, is not a positive thing. John is horrified. Okay, he's, he's horrified. And it's, a, it's a mixture of disgust, disturbed, terror, 
it, you know, this what he's seeing. Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman, this city and of the beast. So you've got a city, you've got an empire. We talked about that in chapter 13. The beast represents this, this empire rooted in the prophecy of Daniel, this empire that's going to crush and conquer and persecute. So I'll tell you the mystery of the woman, that's the city, and of the beast, that's the empire, with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. Okay? And what does that mean? Now, again, there's, there's stuff here in this prophecy we can't say for sure. We don't know. But there's some kind of connection. The city and the beast. Okay? The city and the empire. Now, uh, could it be that the city is, is the capital city or something of the beast empire? Could be. But there's some kind. I can't, you can't say for sure. But there's some kind of close connection, the, the woman and, and the beast. Okay? Now, here we get some encouragement. This was encouragement for the first century Christians, and I'll show you how it's encouragement for us today. But it says this, verse 14, they will make war on the Lamb. Literally, they're at war with the Lamb. By the way, are there cities like that? Are there countries like that today? And the answer is yes. There are countries that are at war with Jesus today, outright. In fact, I would say in a, in, there are some co- countries that are outright at war with Jesus. There are other countries that are at war with Jesus, and nobody would just say it. But I mean, you look at a country like China right now, the persecution, they're, 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 now, they're telling us now, the persecution is as bad there as it was when Mao first took over, when so many people were killed. It is horrible. They're using technology to attack, root out, ferret out, find, imprison and everything. Followers of Jesus and pastors, like they are just, they're just trying to literally uh, pummel the, the church to death. China right now is a country that is at war with Jesus. You won't read that in the newspapers, okay? But that's how Jesus says it. You are at outright war with me, okay? Now, that can be a little depressing when you see a country like that, and China wouldn't be the only one. We could, there's a whole list of countries that are outright at war, okay? In North Korea, Saudi Arabia, places like that, outright at war with Jesus. But I want you to see the next part. And the Lamb will conquer them. So let's keep that in mind. Okay? And the lamb will conquer them. It looks bad in the newspapers, but the lamb, they're at war with Jesus. He knows it. And he is going to conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And I want you to see the sovereignty of God, how he's actually going to defeat them. And I, I love his method. Well, let's read about it instead of me describing it for you first. A couple of verses later, it says this in verse, seven, in, uh, verse 16 of chapter 17, the ten, the 10 horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. Wait a minute. I thought they were on the same team. They're together. The beast is carrying her somehow. But in the end, beast hates the prostitute. They will make her desolate, naked, and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. Now look at this. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose. They are against God, and God's so sovereign that he can still put it into their hearts and make them do whatever he wants them to. It doesn't matter how much someone hates God. When he has purposes to accomplish, you can be an utter, outright rebellion against God, and he will just use your rebellion against you. And he actually, in his sovereignty, the beast hates him and is persecuting Christians, and God says, I don't even need to defeat the heart of myself. I'm going to first turn you against yourself. By the way, this is a strategy that's common in the Old Testament. How many times in the Old Testament does God defeat Israel's enemies this way? Like uh, Gideon, right? Gideon and his 300 men against tens of thousands of Midianites. And they break their jars and they shout for the Lord and for Gideon. And what, hap- what does it say? The Midianites all get up in their tents and start stabbing each other. God says to, to Gideon, you're not strong enough to defeat this army. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make them kill each other. That actually happens a number of times. In the Old Testament, he just, turned, he just takes Satan and breaks him using his own weapons. That's the sovereignty of God. Now, there's a couple of things we need to know because we're asking the question, has Rome, I mean, if Rome is the heart of Babylon, has the heart of Babylon come and gone? Are all of these prophecies, 17, 18, 19, are they all in the past? And so there's a couple more things we need to look at, and it's really important, this, this uh, passage, chapter 18 and 19 in particular, are very clear about the destruction of this harlot city and how it happens. It's going to happen both suddenly and utterly. In other words, finally, totally. Okay? Let's look at a couple of passages. Because again, John makes a big deal of this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. For this reason, 
Her plagues will come in a single day. Okay, so the point is quickly. It's not a slow decline for this hearted city. It is quickly. Death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And again, the point here, always when you're reading prophetic scripture and the scripture in general. Okay, the point here is not to take our Western modern mindsets and a stopwatch and say, okay, the destruction of this harlot city is going to come in 60 minutes. That's not the point. The point is it comes quickly, it comes suddenly. Okay, the point is not, you know, is the whole thing over within exactly 24 hours because it happens in a single day. The point is it comes suddenly, it comes quickly. It's not drawn out. And then there's another thing you need to see is that once the heart of Babylon has been judged, it never rises again. And this is going to be important in just a moment, but I just want to show you this first, okay? It's important for how do we interpret, is this all in the past or is this something that will yet happen again? It says this in chapter 19, in heaven they are rejoicing. Verse 1, after this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, hallelujah, Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Now, here's another great example of biblical language, okay? Biblical language. So you read this, and some people say, okay, when the harlot Babylon is finally burned up, the flames are literally going to burn forever and ever and ever and ever and never go out. Is that what you think is going to happen? So in heaven, we'll be in heaven. Jesus will come down to earth. The new heaven and new earth will come down to earth. And the heart of, because that's what it says here, right? If we just take the English, you know, super, super literally, then the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. So the new heavens and new earth are going to come down. I know people who read this verse this way. And then forever and ever and ever, you're going to watch this city burning because that's what it says here. And the answer is, no. This city is not going to be on fire somehow forever. We're not going to keep witnessing this city on fire in heaven. And the reason I bring this up is, it actually ties to, to what the Bible is saying here, some very common biblical language. And as I've been telling you throughout this series, the book of Revelation is steeped in the Old Testament. So always we go back to the Old Testament and see what is happening here. Where is this coming from? Well, if we go to the Old Testament, we'll find that it is common prophetic language to speak about cities being burned up forever and ever. And this one in particular goes back to Isaiah 34, verses 8 to 10. And I'll read this to you here. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion and the streams of Edom. So Edom was a nation. Okay, it was a tribe that lived in what is today modern-day Jordan. And them and Israel, they were constant enemies. And here in this passage, Isaiah is, is prophesying about the judgment of Edom. And it says, The streams of Eden, Edom shall be turned into pitch, and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. Now, I just took a, a group of people, as you know, last month we were in Israel, and, uh, and that was amazing. I'm going to take another group next year. I, my goal is that anybody in this church who wants to, at some point, uh, could come on a, on a trip if they want to and, and are able to do that. But anyway, we were in Israel with a group last month, and, uh, and so we were there at the Jordan River, and, and we were there at the Dead Sea, and you could, in the wilderness there, where the Israelites walked, and you could look across into the mountains of what is today Jordan. And this passage here says that Edom is going to burn forever. Now, the question is, is the country of Jordan still on fire today? And the answer is no. It's not on fire today, okay? You can look in the country of Jordan. There's people living there today, okay? It's not on fire still today. So you look at that and you go, oh, wait, this prophecy didn't come true. And the answer is, yes, it did come true because in the Old Testament, this is how the prophets spoke of the utter destruction of something. 
When something was utterly destroyed, they would speak in prophetic hyperbole, and it just meant that it was completely consumed and destroyed and burnt up. That's how they talked. Not meaning that the fire would literally go and go and go and go and go and go and go forever and ever. And we even see there from generation to generation shall I waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. Are there people living in the country of Jordan today where Edom used to, Edom used to be? And the answer is yes. There's a, there's a few million people living there now. So you say, did this passage not come true? It did come true. The nation of Edom was wiped out. It is no more. Different people moved in much later. But this is how the prophets spoke. So when they spoke of utter destruction, they spoke of fires that would never burn out and smoke that would go up forever and never, and it's true. I'm not changing the meaning of it. I'm just showing you how they talk, just like we talk today, all right? And, there, and you'll see this all over the Old Testament. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 27. Uh, this one, God is prophesying against Jerusalem, okay? And this is, you know, all the whole book of Jeremiah is basically Jeremiah prophesying to the nation of Israel, repent or judgment's coming. And this is what it says in Jeremiah 17. But if you do not listen to me to keep the Sabbath day holy and not to bear a burden and enter by the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then I will kindle a fire in its gates and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem and shall not be quenched. Now, this prophecy was fulfilled when Nebuchadnezzar came and destroyed the temple and raised the city of Jerusalem to the ground. I mean, it literally got raised to the ground. It's only a couple of generations later that it gets rebuilt in, in, when we read in the books of Nehemiah and Ezra. So this was fulfilled in the days of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Jeremiah says that God would, uh, you know, kindle a fire that would not be quenched. Now, again, the question is, is Jerusalem, are the palaces of Jerusalem still on fire today? And the answer is, absolutely not. Okay. This is how the prophets talked about something that would utterly destroy. Was the nation of it, was Jerusalem utterly destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar? Yes. Okay? It was burned up and destroyed. Is it still on fire today? No. So utter destruction. Okay, so if we go back to Revelation 18 and 19, we'll see that this is confirmed. Okay, Revelation 18 confirms that we're reading chapter 19 correct. When chapter 19 says the smoke's going to go up forever and ever, what it's talking about is this harlot city being utterly destroyed and not to rise again. And we see this confirmed in chapter 18, that a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. Okay? It won't rise again. That's the whole point. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. So the harlot city, when it is destroyed, it will be destroyed utterly. And it will be destroyed totally, never to, never to return. Now, the question is, did these details get, uh, you know, did they come true? Were they fulfilled in the city of Rome? And the answer is, absolutely not. And I can tell you that for sure because you can still go to Rome today. It's like one of the biggest tourist destinations in the world. It's still there, okay? It has been continuously inhabited for more than 2,500 years, okay? Continuously. It has been, it was defeated in battle a number of times. It was sacked, I think, seven times, depending on how you count or, you know, different things. Was that two or was that one? All these different things. But the city of Rome was never utterly destroyed as chapter 18 and 19 describe. Furthermore, the Roman Empire was not suddenly destroyed. It declined over, over a, a period of many, many centuries. I mean, Edward Gibbon wrote like a 3,000-page book on it called The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. It was not sudden. Reading that book is anything but sudden. I got about a third to half of the way through, and I'm like, I think I know enough now, and I put it away, okay? <laughs> it's a very thick book, Okay? But Rome was not, was not judged either suddenly or totally. So therefore, ultimately, this prophecy has not been fulfilled in Rome. Now, you say, are you saying that the first century Christians were wrong to read the harlot as Rome? And the answer is no. They were meant to read it as Rome. 
Okay? Just like there have been many antichrists, the harlot spirit, the antichrist spirit is at work in every generation. And there's no question that for them, the harlot Babylon was Rome. They were meant to read it that way, and it was meant to apply to their lives that way. All this means is that there has to be yet a final fulfillment where all the details will be fulfilled. But in the moment, this had many practical applications for them. I mean, if this was just supposed to be something that's way in the future, look at some of the practical things, what this will have meant to them as they understood it as Rome. For example, 18 verses 4 to 5, I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her. So it's saying about the harlot. Say, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Now, that was not meant to be something that, okay, some Christians in the future will apply this. That was meant for Christians already then. Remember, Rome was an incredibly pagan culture. Like I said, their entertainment was disgusting and immoral. Their parties uh, were disgusting and sexually immoral. Uh, many of them, they had idolatrous feasts that had, with work feasts. And if you were in the army or if you were in a trade guild, they had all these feasts where you had to make offerings to idols. And John is saying to them, come out of her. Not just physically. I mean, there was Christians working in Rome and Paul was trying to get to Rome in order to spread the gospel there. The point wasn't just to physically come out of her, although some of them will have had to do that too. The point was to come out of her sins. Do not participate in her sins. That's the harlot, antichrist, spirit at work. Do not participate in her sins. This was not meant to be something way in the future. This was meant to apply to them already back then. Don't participate. The idolatrous feasts, the, the, the immoral parties, the, the, the violent games, do not participate. Come out of her. Don't share in her, in her sins, lest you also share in her plagues. Okay? Don't share in her sins or you share in her plagues. By the way, does that not still continue to apply to us today? This is not just something in the future. God says the encouragement here is he is going to judge every antichrist empire and spirit. And the call to Christians, he's going ju to judge. You don't think there's an antichrist spirit. Well, we'll get to that in a few minutes. But you don't think there's antichrist spirit at work in our culture today? And Jesus says, just because it's normal. You know, in, in Rome, we might look at some of the stuff they did in Rome and go, that's disgusting. I would never participate in an idolatrous feast like that. I would never participate in, in an orgy like that. I would never, and yet in those days, it had become normal. It was no big deal. What are the things we do in our culture? What do we watch and listen to and participate in? Because it's normal in our culture, but if we step back, what does Jesus say? Come out of her. There's supposed to be a difference between us and the world. Not legalistic differences, but what are we doing just because everybody else in our culture does it? Jesus says, come out of her. If you share in her sins, you're going to share in her plagues. So, and yet, Rome did not meet all the requirements of this, of this prophecy. So there is yet another harlot city to come in the future. And no doubt, I wouldn't doubt that there are, you know, kind of shades of various, you know, of the harlot city in various forms, probably in every generation. But there will be a final one that's coming. Now you say, which one is that? Now, I want to make a recommendation to you here. Because whenever we talk about the future, whenever we talk about the future, we don't talk about the future with certainty. We talk about it with question marks. You say, why talk about it at all? I think there's a place for us to look at God's word and to be watchful, not to try to exactly predict the future, but at the same time, we have this word of God, we want to apply it today, and we want to be watchful in prayer for what's coming. So we don't hold these things too tightly at all. So we hold them loosely, we hold them prayerfully, we hold them watchfully. I think the best case I've seen made, and I'm not going to make it for you here today, because uh, I'm not going to make it as good as him anyway, and it would take too much time, but uh, you'll remember we had Joel Richardson here several years ago to do a conference. I really love him. He loves Jesus. He loves missions. He loves people. He loves evangelism. Uh, he makes a really good case. And the reason I'm going to recommend it in a message is I really think anybody who reads some of these books, you are going to learn a lot about God's Word and how to understand it, how to understand the prophetic scriptures, how to understand the Old Testament 
how to understand the perspective of the Bible, okay? And so if you're at all interested, but anyway, he makes the case that the final Antichrist beast empire in Harlot City is going to come out of the Middle East because this is a Middle Eastern-centered book, uh, that it's going to be come out of Islam somehow, and it's going to attack the nation of Israel and persecute Christians. Now, again, I put question marks because we can't know the future for sure. But like I said, I think of all the cases I've seen made, he makes by far the best one I've ever seen, and you will learn lots about God's word if you dig into that. So there's a couple of books there, he's, and we have them all in our library. You can also get all of his books, actually. You can download them on his website, I believe, for free. Uh, if anybody's interested in that, you will learn about the Bible. But whatever the case is, we will find the Antichrist spirit already at work in our generation. Now, interestingly enough, someone might say, why on earth would you even say something like that in church? I mean, we all know there's certain topics in our culture don't bring up. So, and Islam would be one of them. Why would you talk about Islam in church? Let's leave that one alone. Why would you even say, you know, maybe the Antichrist empire could rise out of Islam? Maybe it could rise in the Middle East. Isn't saying something like that a hateful thing to say? And the answer is, no, it isn't. We're not talking about and, and this is where we need to look at a biblical definition of what the Antichrist spirit is. We're not talking about, when I say the Antichrist spirit is at work today and there's been different Antichrist empires and all sorts of stuff, it's not meant as an insult. When I say the Antichrist spirit is at work in a nation or in a, in a place, it doesn't mean that all those people are raving lunatics or terrible people. The Antichrist spirit simply means against Christ. That's it. Any system of thought or belief that sets itself up against the saving knowledge of Jesus as God who died on the cross for our sins and rose from the grave again, any system of thought that sets itself up against that is antichrist. There are many antichrist systems of thought out there. Atheism. I mean, Jehovah's Witnesses deny that Jesus is God, the only begotten Son of the Father. So that is antichrist. It just means against Christ. Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism. Okay, if we look at uh, 1 John chapter 2, 22 verse to 23, we see this definition, who is the liar, but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ, this is the Antichrist. Okay, so again, we're not using, the, the Bible doesn't use the word Antichrist as an insult, like, okay, now all Christians need to hate anybody who has this Antichrist spirit, we hate. No, no, we love everyone, we love our enemies. Antichrist has a meaning. It means against Christ. That's what it means. We don't hate people because they deny Christ, but that is what Antichrist is. He who denies the Father and the Son, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Now, let's go back to Islam for just, just a moment. One of the interesting things in our day and age so there's many, it's not just Islam, there are many different antichrist systems, okay? But it is interesting that Islam as a system of thought is explicitly and specifically antichrist, okay? It specifically, as part of its holy writings, denies that Jesus is God or that Jesus is the way of salvation or that Jesus died for our sins. That is explicitly antichrist. It's not an insult if you ask any Muslim, do you believe that Jesus is God? Well, absolutely not. Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross for sins? Absolutely not. Well, that is antichrist. It doesn't mean you're a bad person. It just means that is antichrist thinking. Okay? I'll read you just a couple of verses from the Quran just to see how specific this is. It's, it's, it's interesting to me in this day and age that it is so specific in the Quran to deny exactly what 1 John says is essential. Chapter 5 or Surah 5 from the Quran says this. In, so this is right in the Quran. In blasphemy indeed are those that say that God is Christ, the Son of Mary. So, so there. I mean, that is Antichrist. It doesn't mean people are bad. That is Antichrist. Okay? According to John. And it's specifically written in there. Like in Buddhism, you won't find specifically Antichrist statements, even if it is an Antichrist system of thought. In Hinduism, the same thing. But here you actually find specific statements. Chapter 9, the Christians call Christ the son of Allah. 
Okay, this, the Son of God. That is a saying from their mouth. In this they but imitate what the unbelievers of old used to say, Allah's curse be on them, how they are deluded away from the truth. That's Surah chapter 9. Okay, Surah chapter 10, they say, God has begotten a son. Glory be to him. He is self-sufficient. His are all things in the heavens and the earth. No warrant have ye for saying this. So in other words, it's blasphemy to say that God would have a son. Now, it's interesting that 1 John 2 explicitly, I'm just going to put them up beside each other, explicitly talks about this. Who is the liar but he that denies that, Je- who, who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. Who, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Furthermore, I'm just going to show you one more thing from the Quran. The Quran specifically states that Jesus did not die on the cross for sins. Again, none of this is an insult to Islam. I'm just showing you what they believe, right? That's, I'm not insulting Islam. I'm not coming against Islam in the sense of, you know, this is bad to believe this. I'm just showing you this is explicitly opposite of Christianity, of the very foundations of Christianity, all right? Um, because there's a lot of thinking out there today, oh, Islam, Christianity, they're all the same. Well, they're, actually, they're opposite. They're completely opposite on the main points. Like opposed to each other, you've got Christ and you've got against Christ, you've got Antichrist. That they said in boast, we killed Christ Jesus, the son of Mary, the messenger of Allah, but they killed him not, nor crucified him. But so it was made to appear to them, and those who differ therein are full of doubts with no certain knowledge, but only conjecture to follow for a surety they killed him not. Nay, Allah raised him up to himself, not speaking of resurrection there, but they say that the Quran says that God took Jesus up before he could be killed, and Allah is exalted in power wise. That's the whole plan of salvation right there. Okay? And you say, now what should this inspire in us? You know, looking at these passages of the Quran, what should this inspire in us? Should this inspire anger? Should we be angry at Muslims? Should we be angry and abrupt and really against any time we hear anything about Muslims in the news? And the answer is, absolutely not. Absolutely not. This should inspire in us waves of compassion. You've got one, you know, the latest estimates are about 1.8 billion people in the world being Muslim. Far and away, the, far and away, the biggest non-Jesus religion in history. I mean, the mother of all religions, not Jesus in history, okay? It's the biggest one by far. You've got 1.8 billion people who are being raised up in homes and schools in countries where they are being told that God is not a father, that Jesus did not die on a cross for their sins, that Jesus is not raised from the dead, that there isn't forgiveness. That shouldn't make us mad. That should make us sad. It should motivate us to pray and love people like never before. By the way, this also does not mean that Muslims are all crazy people. That's another stereotype that is just awful that we as Christians should never hold. I got an email recently from a person in our church who, were, who, was, who met with a, a Muslim person, and a Muslim man in another country. And uh, this guy had, you know, three wives, and they were talking and joking about all kinds of stuff, and he was joking about how, you know, no more for him and uh, all this sort of stuff. But anyway, I get this email, and this guy is like, but he's a really nice guy. Can I tell you something here right now? Don't be surprised to find out that people who aren't Christians are really nice people. Lots of people who are Muslims. I've met some Muslims. I'm thinking of one particular right now. Some of the most beautiful, hospitable, gracious, wonderful, well-spoken people you'll ever meet put some Christians to shame, unfortunately. Okay? We love Muslim people. Oh my goodness, yes. We are not opposed to people. We love people. Okay? Islam as a system of thought is Antichrist. Is it the Antichrist? Well, only the future will show us. Okay? Do we stand against the system of thought in the sense that we proclaim Jesus without fear and will continue to do so? 
And when it comes to people, we're not surprised to find that many of these people who disagree with us are actually lovely people, and they need to hear the gospel of Jesus. That's what they need. Not a bunch of angry Christians who are upset about the system instead of loving the people. We need to differentiate between a system of thought and the Muslim people. Well, let's recap this, and let me read to you two final verses, and we're done. The heart of Babylon, three chapters, a big chunk of Revelation, one of the longest continuous prophecies in the entire scripture is all about the heart of Babylon, very interestingly enough. But anyway, in the past, there's no question the first century Christians read it as the Roman Empire, and they were right in their day. In the future, will an empire rise up out of Islam in the Middle East? We'll see. In the meantime, we're going to stand against all antichrist systems, and I'm telling you, there are antichrist systems at work in our country too. And you don't have to be super intelligent to figure out what they are. We're going to stand against those systems, but you know what we're going to do? We're not just going to be angry people because we're standing against systems. What we're going to be known for is that we love the people under those systems. So I finish with these words back in Revelation 14. Here's a call for the endurance of the saints. What's, what are we supposed to endure in? Endure in sharing the gospel. Endure in doing right. Endure in standing for truth, but doing it in patience and goodness. And lastly, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. This is the new perspective we all need to incorporate. Blessed are the ones who die. Blessed are the ones who get persecuted for enduring. I know Christians already now, we're hardly facing anything at all yet in our country. But there are pressures. People in various places in our culture already feel certain pressures. There's no question. Sometimes I hear Christians, and it's like they're tired out already. I don't know if I can keep going. I don't know if I can keep being a light. I don't know if I can keep doing this. They're tired out from the constant pressure. You need to meditate on this word. Blessed are those who die. You know what? If those, Ro if those first century Roman Christians were blessed to die, aren't you blessed to get a little bit of persecution? Aren't you blessed to lose your job if that's what it's going to be? You're blessed. So you actually don't even have to have that stress. Maybe I'm going to lose my job. Maybe I'm going to get in trouble. And then you can just realize, wait a minute, I'm blessed if I lose my God. My God, no, no. <laughs> I'm blessed if I lose my job. I'm blessed if I lose my job. I'm blessed if I get sh publicly shamed and humiliated at that meeting. I'm blessed if I, whatever it is, when you realize you're blessed for being persecuted, the burden of oppression lifts significantly. Bow your heads with me and close your eyes. Lord Jesus, we want to be a people that loves you and loves people who stand against systems, antichrist systems, but who do it in a way that, first of all, always shows love to the people under those systems. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It is against principalities and powers and forces of evil in dark places. Lord Jesus, always remind us of that. Grow us in prayer. Grow us in evangelism. Grow us in our love for you and in our courage. In your name we pray. Amen.